So our predicament as human beings uh, is that we have what are sometimes called these outflows, sometimes the words translated as cankers, sort of an interesting word, like a spreading sore, I think is the definition of a canker. And uh, one particular definition of the word asava is intoxicant biases. So an intoxicating bias of the mind. Taints, floods, yokes. So these are just different translations how Ajahn Tanisaro translates as effluence. So we practice, we're motivated to practice, to make effort, because when we pay enough attention, we see that the mind is under the influence of these torments. <coughs> and we're naturally motivated because of compassion. Wisdom helps us understand our predicament, and compassion motivates us to do something about it. There's a sutta The title is The Ship. At Savati, there the Buddha, the Blessed One, said, I'll tell you, practitioners, it is for one who knows and sees that there is an ending of the effluence, the torments of mind. For one who knows and sees what? Is there an ending of the effluence? Such as form, such its origin, such its passing away such as feeling, such as origin, such as passing away. Same with perception, mental formations, and consciousness. So basically, the Buddha is saying, there is a, if you see and know that the body and mind comes and goes, (coughs) then there can be an ending of the effluences. It is for one who knows and sees in this way, that there's an ending of the affluence. Even though this wish may occur to a practitioner who dwells without devoting oneself to development, oh, that my mind might be released from the affluence through lack of clinging. Still, this person's mind is not released from the affluence, from these torments, through lack of clinging. Why is that? From the lack of developing, it should be said. Lack of developing what? And then the Buddha goes on to basically describe the path that he's teaching, you know, the uh, path of practice, which is described, as I mentioned the other night, as the wings to awakening, these collection of models, the four foundations of mindfulness, the four exertions to um, prevent unwholesome states, to abandon unwholesome states, to develop wholesome states, to maintain them, the four powers, the five faculties that we talked about last night, seven factors of awakening, and the noble eightfold path. If you add these up, you have 37 wings to awakening. So this is the basic collection of the Buddhist teachings. And so much of what he taught over 45 years, but they're just different angles. And they're not different sets of teaching, really, they're overlapping models 
to understand the mind. So you don't have to pick up all of these models. You could just take the five faculties. Or not even that, just cultivate the continuity of mindful awareness and you're doing these 37 things. Because they really are different ways of understanding what's in the way of this continuity of mindfulness and how to set it in motion. So he goes on. He gives a simile, the Buddha, in this discourse. Suppose a hen has eight, ten, or twelve eggs. If she doesn't cover them rightly, warm them rightly, or incubate them rightly, then even though this wish may occur to her, oh, that my chicks might break through the eggshells with their spiked claws or beaks and hatch out safely, still it is not possible that the chicks will break through the eggshells with their spiked claws or beaks and hatch out safely. Why is that? Because the hen has not covered them rightly, warmed them rightly, incubated them rightly. In the same way, even though this wish may occur to a practitioner who dwells without devoting oneself to the development, oh, that my mind might be released from these torments through lack of clinging, through the letting go of identification and attachment. Still, this person's mind is not released from these torments. Why? From lack of developing. And then a little later in this discourse, the Buddha says that uh, even if a person, a practitioner, doesn't have the wish, oh, that my mind would be released from these torments through lack of clinging, it doesn't matter. If you've done the development, the mind will be released. And this is what I've said and you, I'm sure, have seen that Wanting anger to go out of the mind or wanting lust to go out of the mind or wanting this or that tormenting state to go away doesn't really do much and often it just adds another layer of stress. But actually getting interested in causes and conditions and really putting the mind, putting the heart to that task of understanding causes and conditions. And even if we don't have a clue, we start experimenting and we just see what happens if I do this, if I do that. What's the effect on the mind? (coughs) So we're recognizing dukkha, like there is a reason to practice because there is this experience of dukkha and we're mastering the causes and conditions and we're realizing letting go. And in a way, we can think about those three things in light of the guided meditation this morning and what I said last night coming out of the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse, the talk the Buddha gave on mindfulness where for each meditation instruction he kind of gives three frequencies of effort Keep the theme in mind. Keep the reality that this mind experiences these outflows, these torments, these cankers. Keep that in mind. Don't forget that. So when it's really light and not so bad, still notice that just the fact that we're not out of the woods, like even though the mind might be really nice now, we know that disappointment can re-arise we know that greed can re-arise, restlessness can re-arise. So even that alone is stressful. Even if those 
affective states aren't in our mind right now? Does anybody have a clear sense that they're out of the woods? So that's stressful. Can we keep that theme in mind when it's, when they're alive, we keep it in mind, and when they're latent, they're not there, active, but we know we're not out of the woods with them. So we keep that in mind, and then when there's enough stability, we do more than just keep them in mind, we study causes and conditions. What is keeping anger out of the mind right now? How come it's not arising? Or if it's there, what is the mind doing that is feeding it, supporting it, causing it to be in the mind? Same with any other afflictive state. So we're understanding the arising and passing of the wholesome and unwholesome conditions. And when when wisdom has enough momentum, we'll sti- we are still keeping the theme of dukkha in mind, dukkha and its release in mind. But now we're trusting wisdom to do its own work. We're not neurotically thinking, I have to do the work of wisdom. So this is the third stage of mindfulness, where mindfulness, keeping the theme in mind, is just there enough for that radical, non-clinging, non-identification, or as Ajahn Tanisara says, non-fashioning, not trying to do anything. But instead, we're trusting the momentum of wisdom to see things as they are, into naturally, according to causes and conditions, the lawfulness of the mind, not feed it, and to undermine it, and to feed what's wholesome and good. So in a way, as practitioners, you know, we could take up anything, but as students of the Buddha, the ultimate theme for our practice is this theme of dukkha and its release or these outflows of mind, or torments of mind, or cankers of mind, or, what was the other one, intoxicant biases of mind. (laughs) You can use the word that inspires you. And hopefully we don't have to wait until we get a serious wake-up call to be inspired by this, to sort of really start looking at what's going on. Some people, that's how they show up. They get cancer, they get through the rough patch, you know, where they're dealing with chemo and radiation and they go in remission and they go, maybe I should figure out how to work with the mind because when that all happened, my mind didn't know what to do with itself. So they find a place like common ground if they're lucky. Or these teachings if they're lucky. So do we need to wait for that kind of a wake-up call or can we See the writing on the wall, you know, birth, aging, sickness, and death, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. This is not unique to particular people, you know, who have bad luck. This is just the way that it is for all of us. There's a, I'm glad we did Mudita this afternoon looking at the beautiful, because <laughs> I'm going to read some things that, I mean, there's this highly developed uh, teaching in Buddhism, samvega is the word, I'll talk more about it in a minute, but uh, spiritual urgency, but it's even more than a sense of spiritual urgency. It's really understanding a, a sense of having that we ourselves, we ourselves have betrayed ourselves.
there's like a sense of shock that uh, surprise or shock when we thought what was dependable isn't actually dependable. You know, the things that were really going to take care of us aren't really there to take care of us. Whether your perfect relationship continues or suddenly ends in a surprising way, either way, you can come to this place of shock. This person is not going to make me happy in any lasting way, either because this person has left me (laughs) or I'm leaving them, or even if the relationship in an outwardly way seems like a really healthy relationship, but it still will dawn on the mind, if you're honest, that this person is not going to make me happy. And it can be shocking. And it's the same thing with health, you know, having a vigorous health or um, having a cool house that's, you know, eco-friendly and in a cool neighborhood and, you know, decorated in just the right sort of way, that none of it will make us happy. And it's shocking. That's the first part of the samvega, the spiritual <laughs> urgency. And there's a sense of, Ajahn Tanisaro says, a chastening sense of one's own complicity, complacency and foolishness and having let oneself live so blindly. It's like, how could I have thought that that was going to take care of me? Whatever it is. Where we've put, um, put ourselves in the hands of something that is impermanent. So, this is important to understand because it's a, it, it helps the sincerity of effort if it's coming from this place of some vega, of a deeper understanding. So here's one of the more famous passages in this area of teaching. called the stream of tears. Practitioners, this samsara, these cycles of suffering, is without discoverable beginning. The first point is not discerned by beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance, fettered by craving. What do you think, practitioners? Which is more, the stream of tears that you have shed as you roamed and wandered through this long course weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable, this or the water in the four great oceans? And of course, it's the water in the four great oceans. Later in this talk, the Buddha says, For a long time, practitioners, you have experienced the death of a mother. As you have experienced this, weeping, wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable, the streams of tears you have shed is more than the water in the four great oceans. For a long time you have experienced the death of a father, brother, sister, son, daughter, relatives, wealth, lost through illness. And on and on he goes. Long enough, it is enough to experience disenchantment toward all formations enough to become dispassionate toward them, enough to become liberated from them. And there's a similar parallel passage where instead of 
the stream of tears, it's the stream of blood. And again, think of these teachings as medicine. And you take this kind of medicine when you need it. Now, some of you might already be quite poignantly aware of the limitations of sense experience, and you don't need this kind of medicine. But the stream of blood is just imagining how many times we've bled. As an animal, you know, just in terms of Buddhist cosmology, we've been cows slaughtered. We've been this and that. We've been robbers who have been caught and beheaded. We've been, he goes on and on like this. So how much blood have you lost? Is it more than the four great oceans or less? And he says, no, it's more. So the Buddha is trying to paint a really vast picture to help draw up a sense of spiritual urgency, a sense of shock that we orient towards superficial things. And we don't want to judge ourselves. Like, I've seen this, here I am preparing to talk about some Vega, and I see my mind right in the middle of preparing the talk, gravitating towards really superficial things. So, we have to, exactly as some of you just did, we have to have a sense of humor about these tendencies of the mind, but also an honest appreciation, like it's not going to help these diversions, whatever it might be, whether it's food or entertainment or lust or power or whatever it might be, we have to have a deepening sense of the limitations of even the most wholesome pleasures, sensual pleasures that we might gather. And again, it's not that the Buddha is saying it's bad. They're bad. They're just limited. Meaning, we can't hold on to them in any meaningful way. So, if we get it, we have to lose it. Whatever we get, we have to lose. Well, that's different, you know, that, that has a whole different flavor I think about that now in terms of home renovations because we've been, over the years, been doing a lot. <laughs> and uh, to just, because the way my mind works is, okay, I'll do it and then that will be done. And I always think like 20, 30, will it last 20, 30 years? I'm probably not going to last longer than that. Just get me to the end of my life so we don't have to do it again. You know, it's a sort of, but to just, one way or another I lose. So even if it, like the renovation holds up for as long as I'm alive, I still lose it. You know, either it falls apart before I die and I have to do it again, or there it is and then I die. But one way or another, it isn't there for me in any meaningful way. And again, it doesn't mean, I mean, we're obviously we're going about making improvements but not to be idealistic or naive about what's going on. These are superficial things that bring a superficial feeling of satisfaction, a temporary feeling of satisfaction. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's less dangerous. 
And when we're not honest with ourselves, it's actually dangerous because it keeps us from pursuing from this spiritual urgency and pursuing something that might be of real use. Saito Utejaniya says, One thing you need to remember and understand is that you cannot leave the mind alone. It needs to be watched constantly. If you, not, if you do not look after your garden, it will overgrow with weeds. If you n- do not watch your mind, torments will grow and multiply. The mind does not belong to you, but you're responsible for it. In another place in the uh, Dhammapada, the collection of verses from the Buddha, he says, With steady effort one should do what is to be done, because the lax practitioner stirs stirs up even more dust. So here's this really brings up spiritual urgency. When you realize that not practicing doesn't keep us at the same place. Not practicing, not making appropriate effort brings up more dust. See, that's motivating, isn't it? Because one of the easy uh, delusions to harbor is, I'll do it later. <laughs> but if we have the sense that doing it later means having a harder time at it, it's, you see, we get motivated. Oh, maybe this is the time. This is the time to do it. Matt, some of you know Matt Buzzard. He, is a, he had heard this proverb, the best time to plant a tree was 10 years ago, <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> the second best time is now. And now is the time. So we have these four exertions to abandon and prevent what's unskillful and develop and maintain what's skillful. And the Buddha gives us a real pep talk. He says, abandon what is unskillful practitioners. It is possible to abandon what is unskillful. If it weren't possible, I wouldn't say to you, abandon what is unskillful. But because it is possible, I say to you, abandon what is unskillful. If it were conducive to harm, I would not say to you, abandon what is unskillful. But because this abandoning of what is unskillful is conducive to benefit and pleasure, I say to you, abandon what is unskillful. We have to have some sense that it's possible. We may not know how to put aside greed, anger, and delusion in any moment of our life, but we have to have, it's like skillful to have the thought it is possible, even though I don't know right now how to do it. Because then we show up, we make effort, we experiment. If we think it's not possible, we're going to assume that the way, the best way through life is to take our chances. You know, to be swept along and just take our chances to that. And this is the ridiculous thing. We think, well, odds are I'm not going to suffer as much as some people. Have you ever noticed your mind saying something like that? As if that actually matters, that there are some people who apparently are suffering more than you, that that makes our suffering somehow not suffering. I mean, that is how deluded we are. It's like, well, at least I'm not suffering as much as other people. I'm not as deluded as other people. 
it's really amazing and and we that's how we get complacent it's like we're a little bit more calm than the people around us so it seems like calm enough we're a little bit more wise have a little bit more perspective than those around us and that seems enough but the only relevant question is is there dukkha because if there is and we see it clearly the motivation to do something about it is right there and if we know anything about the mind, we know that things can change very quickly. Who here couldn't fall into a really hellish state given conditions that are definitely in the mix, possible for us? Whatever it might be. You're driving home from the retreat on Saturday, your cell phone rings, and you said, I'll just get it. You pick it up, and you make a stupid mistake and kill somebody on the road because you weren't paying close enough attention. Or a whole family, let's say. Something terrible. That would change things. You know, to have to deal with all the different le- levels of that. Now, that's not out of the realm of possibility for any of us. Whether you pick up your cell phone or you're changing the radio or you just space out. These sort of mistakes are possible. So do we have a mind that can be free in those conditions? You know, and we could imagine any number of things. We could be as good as the Buddha, you know, and talk about the stream of blood and the stream of tears, you know, just in terms of very possible scenarios for all of us. And if not in this life, if we seem to have gotten a really good roll of the dice, or maybe, who knows, maybe it's karma or fate or but we don't know what's next. You can tell yourself there isn't anything next, but do you know that with certainty? And, uh, you know, in the Buddhist tradition, I really like it because even these really saintly folks kind of have been in really bad states. Like Mogalana, the chief disciple of the Buddha, was, uh, was, uh, the lord of death. <laughs> sort of like, in some ways, the equivalent of Satan, you know, and uh, oh, just all kinds of stories of you know, you're just not out of the woods until you're out of the woods, because until the mind is free, if the conditions are just right, all kinds of negative thoughts seem rational or appropriate. We get identified with them, and then we act them out. And we can do really stupid things when the conditions are just right. And then the remorse or the whatever that could set in motion is just now part of the mind stream. There's not like somewhere you can go back. Oh, let's do that again. Now, there's always a way out. It's not like we're ever condemned. It's not that Christian model where you blow it and then you're in hell for all eternity. It just means that we have an incentive to do the work always. When things are difficult, when things are good, we have this incentive. And a lot of the more teachings on spiritual urgency are directed toward the nuns and the monks who have a lot of samadhi and they're feeling pretty good. You know, they've got some real calm going, Brahma-Vihara is radiating love in all directions in this really symbiotic relationship with the lay people where they sort of are models of good behavior and teach. And on the 
return, they get robes and food and this nice, beautiful community uh, dynamic going on. And then the Buddha says, yeah, you might be feeling a lot of harmony, you might be experiencing a lot of peace in your meditation, you might have really a lot of uh, confidence in your heart that it's not going to harm other living beings because of how you've trained it over the years, but things can change. So finish the finish what you've begun. So we're generating... The, by the way, in that passage, the Buddha goes on to say the same thing about um, developing what is skillful. So it's not just abandoning what is skillful that is possible. He gives that same pep talk that it's possible to develop what is skillful. If it weren't, I wouldn't be telling you, but it is, so that's why I'm telling you. If it was harmful to develop what's skillful, I wouldn't be telling you develop what's skillful. It isn't harmful to be developing what's skillful, so I'm telling you develop what's skillful. (laughs) And he says when we abandon and prevent the unwholesome and develop and maintain the wholesome, then... Like like that opening sutta that I read, the mind inclines to nibbana, to full, unshakable release, in the same way the Ganges River goes to the ocean. It can't be stopped. It doesn't matter whether you wish for full release. If you set in motion the causes, full release will happen. You don't have to, you know, make some resolve in your mind or... You just have to understand the causes and conditions and set them in motion. And remember, the last cause and condition is to let go of participating in causes and conditions. That's that third stage, that radical letting go. But that stage comes by mastering all the more gross ways of participating in cause and effect. First, we keep the theme in mind that stabilizes it, brings some clarity so that we can begin to see the whole world of cause and effect, how I'm paying attention, the qualities of mind that are here, part of paying attention, they matter. So that's how we participate in the stream of cause and effect. And the more refined our participation in cause and effect, the more wisdom that's been set in motion, we begin to discern that the ultimate cause and effect move is to leave it alone, to step out of being the doer. And that's the third kind of effort, that letting go or that radical awareness. Still keeping the theme of dukkha in mind or the way it is in mind, but nothing in addition to that, not participating So we've learned a lot on retreat about abandoning and preventing. So for preventing, you notice like part of it is just the structure of the retreat. We abandon so many of the torments of mind by simply restricting what the heart and mind is inundated with. Simply by not seeing your emails, not reading the news, not seeing your friends, not being at work, not seeing the mess on your desk at home. 
a lot of the torments lie dormant. They haven't necessarily been uprooted, but they're not as active if you were seeing your desk or talking to your friends or reading your emails or looking at the news. And even like how we gaze at each other. You know, when we catch each other, uh, catch each other's eyes or we have permission to evaluate how each other are dressed, a lot of torments come up. I really like that. Why is that person wearing that? Who do they think they are? All the kind of judging and desiring and uh, comparing mind, evaluating mind, all of which is tormenting to the mind. So by just generally, I mean, I know it's we're not getting tight about it, but, you know, generally we're giving everybody their own space and we just look around enough so we don't bump into each other but we're not actively staring at each other. And when we catch ourselves, we remind ourselves, no, no, I'm giving each other, everybody space to be in their own practice space. I'm not going, I'm not, I'm not, we're not inviting each other in. And that's such a relief to not have to look at each other in that way. So the Buddha says in terms of uh, abandon or preventing, and he often uses or it gets translated as guarding the sense gates. But not, it's guarding with wisdom, not that we can't see or can't hear. But when a sense experience arises like a sound or a, um, a sight or a thought, wisdom, mindfulness is there. Oh, this is being known. Should I attend to it? Should this be the theme for my attention? What might happen if I take this up as a theme? As I was reflecting on my talk right before I came in, somebody's alarm went off upstairs, just in case it's yours, you can check on it after the talk, and uh, buzzing, vibrating, you know, and then pause, and then vibrating, pause. And of course... You know, it stands out on a re- in a retreat setting, and the mind wants to attend to it. You know, and then if it attends to it, what is likely that our mind is going to want to do? It's going to want to evaluate the person who set their alarm and then left, right? And sure, we could evaluate it in, oh, this person's probably doing the best they can, or you know, there is probably some emergency, or you know. But no, more likely we'll be judgmental of the person. And that person isn't going to be affected so much. This mind immediately becomes affected by that. It's a torment in this mind to have to have some evaluation, some picture that my thinking mind paints about what's going on, as if I know. And it's that way for absolutely everything. You see shoes when you walk in. Or you see a bunch of sand on the carpet. Or you see, you know, just any number of things. Somebody's car. What are they doing with a car like that? (laughs) Or, you know, bumper stickers. It's like we have to evaluate, judge, and it's tormenting for the mind. 
needing to know what that bird was that just made that sound. Last night, there was just a little, I mean, these can be quite subtle, a little torment. There was a sound. It was really late at night. And I didn't know what kind of animal it was. You know, and it's like, there's part of me that wanted to get my flashlight and figure out what what animal makes a sound like that. And it's like the mind that, so we can choose what sort of themes we're going to let the mind pick up. Does it, is this a cause for lasting happiness, picking up this theme? Any meaningful happiness? No. It's like, I really see this, you know, when I am looking at the news, not being on retreat um, back home, you know, and I'll look at the news, and it's like uh, the kind of articles, you know, where you click and you follow through. It's like, why? What Of what value is this information to the mind? It's just tormenting the mind. It's not actually helping me be a better person or even, in a real way, a, a better informed person. So there is this place of guarding where we're basically like the Buddha said to his son who ordained, took novice ordination when he was like seven. And uh, a little later, a couple years later, when he was eight or nine, the Buddha gave him this talk about how you should uh, um, reflect, is this skillful before, as the theme is arising, why you're engaged in some theme, some action after you've been engaged, is it helpful for me, for others? So we want to be, that's how we prevent unwholesome states. And abandoning, it's basically seeing the activity of mind for what it is, seeing the dukkha. And then the disengagement, the dropping of it, if mindfulness isn't enough to cause anger to fall away or the identification with anger to go away or the identification with the object of greed to go away, then we pull out other strategies like we try to uh, substitute the antidote. So if there's a lot of lust or greed or craving, we reflect on impermanence. I know a lot of people now that have died about my age, my current age. So just remembering that changes my attitude about things I really desire. Or just contemplating the aging of the body, that this body is in this aging process, really changes objects of desi- my attraction to objects of desire. Because part of getting new pants, new electronic devices, new this and that, is that like I'm building up toward this place of perfection when I have everything I need, everything I want. But when we contemplate impermanence, it takes, it takes the steam out of desire. Desire doesn't make sense. The attachment to desire doesn't make sense from the point of view of impermanence, that everything comes and goes. It only really makes sense, like where we're going to follow through with desire or craving, when we have this deluded idea that sometime in the future I'll be complete. I'll have everything. 
and then I can relax and enjoy my life. But in the meantime, I've got some things I need to get. So don't get in my way. And then for ill will, you will probably already know, the antidote to bring to mind as a substitution is some form of loving kindness because ill will and loving kindness don't fit in the same mind. You can have ill will and loving kindness in the mind at the same time. And there are many other ways to abandon unwholesome states to make the effort. But we don't want to just let unwholesome states continue. Bring a creative effort, investigation, experimentation when there are unwholesome states, including, as I said the other night, uh, resolving, repressing. I'm not going to think this. Put your foot down. It's not a very effective strategy. You would only do it if nothing else has worked. But it's better than giving up to sort of, you know, I'm bigger than you are. I'm not going to let this happen. You may not be bigger than it, but you're willing to go head-to-head with it. And that's a good thing. Because going head-to-head with it means you're watering, you're uh, feeding the wisdom that sees this is not helpful. And that's really good. That will serve you in the future, even if it wins this time and you get swept away or continue indulging in that tormented or tormenting pattern. And then developing, that's basically, you could take almost any of the wholesome lists, but the classic one are the seven factors of awakening, the three energizing factors of energy, investigation, and joy, the three tranquilizing factors of tranquility, concentration, and equanimity, and then mindfulness is the factor, the wholesome factor that knows whether you've got too many energi- too much energizing factors going or too many tranquilizing how to keep the mind in balance. When these seven factors are there, awakening happens. And then maintaining is just that keeping the theme in mind, not forgetting. And I mentioned the other night how um, Ajantani Saro talks about that, uh, that the forest Ajans, the, the great our great sort of spiritual ancestors, they tended to have different personalities, but all of them loved solving the problems of the mind. They were energized by the task at hand. And that's what we have to be. I mean, isn't this true for anybody who's good at anything in life? They somehow have found joy in developing their skills. So, because this practice takes so much patience and so much intelligence and so much persistence, we need to find energy. We need to find a way to have energy in doing the practice. It has to bring us alive. So we have to tell ourselves a story. This is one of the nice things about being in community too because then we can have shared stories about the nobility of these efforts how noble, how wholesome it is for people like us, especially lay people like us who do not have ideal circumstances. Some of you have children 
a lot of us have to earn a living. You know, we're in the realm of being, uh, acting out our sexuality in all kinds of different ways and all the complications that come with that. So we have all these things that in some senses enrich our lives that also complicate our lives. So we need community and we need a sense of shared value about this work. And we have to tell each other stories like we do in our small groups about our successes and challenges so that we're all motivated and we get a sense of the lay of the land and that it's possible. We hear how it's possible, all the little and big insights that people have. And uh, it feels to us like a worthwhile endeavor to direct our life in this way, to be a student of the Buddha or to be somebody who, like so many millions of others, have been inspired by these teachings and have just said, okay, so this is what this life is going to be about. I don't know how long it will take, but I put myself to this task. I believe it works. To some degree, my own life has demonstrated that these teachings work. I don't have anything better to do. Nothing seems more (laughs) likely to lead to lasting happiness. So I give myself to this. And I... I am committed to doing the found, because I'm in it for the long haul. This is the thing about being in it for the long haul. We're willing to do the foundational work, right? You know you're not in it for the long haul when you expected this retreat to be the once and final, you know, salvation, finishing the job. And then you can kick back. Look at all the other people down there struggling. <laughs> but uh, but when we get a sense of the vastness and that we're in it for the long haul, then we really settle down. It's like that too. Like I, I feel that way with gardening. For so long at our house, my attitude with the gardening was like, I'm only in it for the short-term effects. You know, just like make it somewhat presentable. Just, oh, this is too embarrassing. i got to do something. I'll do something. But I just see slowly developing in my heart, in my mind, this sense of like wanting to have this integrity about my home and my yard, the whole thing. Like, this is my place. This is my home. We're not moving. I'm in it for the long haul. doesn't mean it has to be perfect. But I'm not, I'm not gonna play this game of like, uh, sort of quick fixes. So when I, we do something, really gonna do it. And I'm gonna set in motion something that can be maintained. I'm not gonna be naive or this crash and burn approach to these important things. Like my home. Like my mind. Right? So we're with this mind, you know, from a Buddhist cosmological point of view. We're with this mind forever. This mind stream continues until there's no more delusion propelling it forward. So, it's like if you get that sense, whatever unwholesome thing I feed this mind, it's going to be around forever 
all of a sudden we start thinking about what we're feeding the mind. Do I really want to add more of this to the mind stream? As we dwell in anger, dwell in lust, dwell in this or that, thinking, you know, I'll be happy if only. Do we want that tendency to be stronger in the mind? It's already hard to bear. It's already hard to work with. Why would we want to strengthen that? So this long-term view really helps. The other thing that uh, Ajahn Kanitaro says about his teachers, these great forest Ajahns in Thailand that he studied with uh, in his early years when he was in Thailand practicing as a monk. Now he's an abbot of a monastery and outside of San Diego, Wat Meta is the name of the place. That's it. One thing he said, they really love problem solving, this ingenuity, this creativity. And he also said uh, that part of the value in the tradition were, were that their teachers, and then they also, weren't into explaining everything to their students, but more about people figuring it out for themselves to a large degree because everybody's situation is a little bit different. The Our own entanglement and the kind of language and the kind of experiences that are specific to our own entanglement, well, they're, ex- they're specific to our own entanglement. So the Buddha and our teachers, they can paint a general picture, but they can't actually tell us how to practice. And I'm sure you've found this frustrating over the years that the teachers you've studied with don't tell you exactly what to do. They give suggestions. Sometimes they have some pretty good intuition about you need to go a little bit this way or a little bit that way. But they can't kind of nail it because, one, we have to practice in a lot of different ways. Basically, as many moments as there are, we have to practice in that many different ways. So how could somebody tell us how to practice? Because each way of practicing is specific to the moment that's arising. And then the last thing he said about these four sajans is they didn't like to be told what to do. <laughs> They're kind of a rebellious nature. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think you're a good example, actually, Casey. <laughs> Not being told what to do, but finding your way. And if we had the time of a couple of weeks, Casey could tell us all of the mistakes he's made in his life and how they can be trained. Huh? But, okay, a month or two. <laughs> and how they got distilled into lessons, right? It's like, you make it enough times, you don't have to make that same mistake anymore. Some of us, there's an image in the tradition of, you know, some of us are like uh, a horse that has to be really beaten and beaten before it gets. <laughs> okay, this is not the way. And then other horses, they just need the you know, the wagon driver or the charioteer to just make a little clicking sound and they know, okay, stop or do this, do that. So, just notice that sometimes and then we need a lot of patience and forgiveness if we just keep going back to something. And that's exactly what was going on tonight. My mind just kept going back. And it's, this is a uh, an expression of delusion is we think, oh, it doesn't matter. It's not that much of a torment. It's kind of nice, actually. Right? Isn't that true? Our torments are a little juicy sometimes. Whether it's anger or greed, there's something a little juicy about it. 
and we just imagine, this is pure delusion now, it's okay. It's okay. I'll put it down when it gets really bad. (laughs) (laughs) What's that? You only need one drink. I'll I'll only have one drink. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for me, it was so much easier to stop drinking altogether than to be moderate. So, this is a... Because I'm one of those horses that needs to get beaten. So, renouncing, you know, really putting things down works better for me. Maybe it's not the case for all of you, but for me, absolutely. Now, the Buddha didn't stop just with the sense of spiritual urgency. Remember, there are three components to Samvega, is the Pali word. Ajatanisaro and others think we should, sometimes we just need to adopt some of these words because we don't really have the equivalent in English. And spiritual urgency captures some of it, but it doesn't capture the sense of shock and the sense of like a wholesome embarrassment or regret, like how could I be so stupid? And you know, in the tradition, there's the Buddha, most of you know the story, before the Buddha started out as a spiritual seeker, he was a wealthy prince, and uh, he had been very uh, kept apart from the realities of life. And then, after a while, he convinced his charioteer to take him out to see the world, and he saw a sick person, and he was shocked to find out that this happens to everybody. And then another trip, he saw somebody who was dead. And his charioteer said, this happens to everybody. And he was shocked and embarrassed that he had gotten to the age of 25 or 26, whatever he was, and this had escaped him. And you might remember the first time you were with somebody who was dying, and it occurred to you, at what age? You Think about what age. Oh, this isn't specific to this person. This process is what absolutely everybody goes through. And maybe it hasn't happened to you yet, but someday it will happen to you, and hopefully it will be before it's you on the deathbed, that you understand that this is a process that absolutely everybody will go through. Sickness, aging, and death. But then there was the fourth spiritual messenger. So the Buddha had three, aging, sickness, and death. And then the next trip out to see the world, he saw a wise, calm ascetic, somebody who had found real joy in living a simple life and renouncing the pursuit of sense pleasures. That doesn't mean they didn't have sense pleasures, but their whole life wasn't directed towards sense pleasures. It was directed toward a deepening of understanding. That's really what we mean by somebody who's, you know, a full-time spiritual aspirant. They take the pleasures that come, they take the difficulties that come, but they're setting up a life that allows them to understand or to deepen understanding as best as possible. And so this is a different kind of value in the tradition of the possibility of release. And this is made just as much of a big deal as the limitations, the spiritual, um, some vega, spiritual urgency, or the sense of 
the limitations of our sense pursuits is that there's a real possibility. And in some ways, this is just as challenging for us as accepting the limitations of wholesome sense pleasures. Good friends, good house, good employment, good health, good causes that we're dedicated to. To see the limitations and even the wholesome end of life's pursuits, but to see the real, like to have the flavor of, uh, of a pervading joy, an unshakable joy related to letting go. So instead of thinking, you know, uh, as we often do, as renunciation as a burden, I guess I should let go. I'm supposed to let go. I'm not supposed to be attached. But actually just the opposite where it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. And some of us have had that as we discovered the teachings of the Buddha. Just like something we reawakens in the mind. Like putting it all down as a, um, an archetype of, oh, this is what this is about. All of this is about learning how to put it down. Not to be averse to life, but to put down attachment, to put down the clinging. So, if that hasn't captured your imagination, this is where study can come in. Hearing the stories and reflecting so that you're, you're cultivating an attraction, you're unearthing, because it's here in your heart, unearthing uh, a thread of joy, of attraction to renunciation. It's something that has to be unearthed for most people because it's been really covered up. If it's already there in you, then you want to water it. You want to develop the attraction to renunciation. And all the outward forms of renunciation are just a playground for the real renunciation. And I wouldn't take any of it too seriously. I would play with it. Play with letting go of different things. Celibacy, food, you know, all the different big areas of holding. Like even going on a Buddhist nine-day retreat. We let go of our homes for nine days, of our relationships, of our the food we like to eat. Yeah, so that's we're playing with that. Like, what's that like? And can that outward, outwardly and superficial renunciation spark a flavor of real renunciation? The heart that unshakably is free, not clinging, not in need, not dependent on anything. I'll just end with this passage I hinted at, I think, maybe one of the small groups. Maybe I said it to the whole group. I can't remember, but anyway, it bears repeating. And it's from uh, Saito Utejaniya. And at the end of the May retreat I was on with him, this Burmese teacher, he said very poignantly that his wish, so he's just speaking to us right before we were all going to leave, he said his wish is that all of us 
would have insight into how valuable the practice is. And he asked, why is it? He asked himself, why aren't you, or why don't yogis, why don't practitioners practice continuously? And he said, there's only one reason. They don't know the value of the practice. How much freedom, how much safety can arise from the practice? If we did, people would practice continuously. So just leave it here. Take a moment, let go of the words. Just before the Buddha's awakening, as the momentum of his practice was building, he was seen by King Bimbisara, who later became a real devotee of the Buddha's. And uh, the king saw him from afar and thought, that, that's an impressive looking guy. And he got his charioteer and they drove out to find the Buddha. And he said, somebody like you should be in front of an army you know, the head of my army. I can give you wealth. I can give you everything you want. And the Buddha responded, I have seen the miseries of pleasures, the attachment to pleasures. I have seen the security involved in letting go, renouncing them. So now I will go. I will go on into the struggle. This is to my mind's delight. This is where my mind finds bliss. So, thanks everyone for listening. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.